Happy New Year, Canada. My name is Kate Graham, and I don't know about you, but I'm feeling really good about welcoming in a new year. It has been a tough few years, and even 2022 is off to a bit of a rocky start. We are living through lots of challenges that I know many of us will be glad to see fade into history. But even still, there's just something exciting about turning to a new chapter with blank pages ahead and a sense of possibility about how we choose to fill them. And really, that is what this podcast is all about, the belief that better is possible, that we don't need to just accept things around us as they are, that we have the power to change our country and our world for the better, because really, that is what politics is supposed to be all about. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's back up a bit. Two years ago, we found ourselves in a moment where there were no women serving in Canada's top political roles as first ministers, meaning prime minister or premier. The Council of the Federation meeting photos looked a little too old boys club and not enough like Canada. Part of the problem is that when the very few women who do reach the top get there, they don't stay. Female first ministers last about 60% as long as men in the role, on average, and when they run for re-election, they lose. In a country where we re-elect incumbents all the time, Canadians have never re-elected a female first minister to lead through a second term. Enter No Second Chances, a podcast project to examine the rise and fall of Canada's female first ministers. So what's changed over the past two years? Well, there are some things we can celebrate. We now have two female premiers, Carolyn Cochran in the Northwest Territories and Heather Stephenson in Manitoba. We see more diversity in many of our elected bodies, and there have been some exciting firsts. We finally saw a woman of color on the leaders' debate stage in the last federal election. But, yeah. <sighs> it has been 100 years since we first elected a woman to the House of Commons. I wonder what Agnes McPhail would say if she took a look at Canadian politics today. Would she be pleased? Or would she be saying, it has been a century, folks, and this is where we are? So let's start there, right where we are. I think we're at a turning point. Meet Anjum Sultana. She's the co-author of the YWCA Canada report, Feminist Recovery Plan for Canada, a partnership between the YWCA Canada and the University of Toronto's Rotman School Institute for Gender and the Economy. After leading that work, I asked Anjum to give me a sense of where she thinks Canada is today when it comes to advancing gender equity. If you were to open any newspaper any time of the week over the last number of months, you would have at least one story talking in some shape or form about the gendered impacts of this crisis, whether it's the rise in unpaid care work with folks being forced to uh, perhaps take care of, you know, their family members, whether children uh, young children or, you know, older adults um, also dealing with the fact that a lot of the jobs that were lost during this time were lost disproportionately by women, women of color, women with disabilities, women experiencing multiple barriers, um, but at the same time being on the front lines of this pandemic. 
Um, we also saw, sadly, the rise in gender-based violence and also the rise in hate crimes. And so we were seeing just divisions and hate and violence festering during this time. Uh, and at the same time, you saw incredible resilience, just incredible demonstrations of care, of community. So where does that leave us today? There's been this window that's opened up, this policy window because of the pandemic. But I think we're at this point where it's starting to shrink. And I think we're at this point where, you know, there's a couple of different paths before us. On one side, there's this path towards transformation and being bold and being unapologetic about the vision we want for society and realizing it's going to take a lot of hard work to make it happen, but it's worth it. So there's that path before us, and it's not as clear-cut, but it's there, and it's definitely calling to us. At the same time, there's a path. There's a path that we've trodden before, um, a path to going back to where we were, and with perhaps the facade of a more inclusive society, perhaps a rhetoric might change here or there, but really, it might be the status quo. And I'm really worried. Hmm. This worry was shared by a few people I spoke to. This is Melanie Thomas, a political scientist at the University of Calgary. She had some similarly concerning reflections about what we're learning during the pandemic about gender inequality in Canada. So I think that we're seeing uh, gendered barriers. Some of them are really reignited in ways that we had kind of uh, let pass back in like or or gotten a bit complacent about right and so for a long time we've not really talked about women's access to labor force participation and access to work and having uh childcare suddenly go and having school suddenly go and having those caregiving responsibilities hit home full time has really shown how the gains that women have made in terms of work um aren't because uh their support at home is actually where it needs to be. I don't want to make this heteronormative because I think that there are systemic structures that are beyond like heterosexual relationships in the home, but like, it's really striking how like we've known from time use surveys that uh, women who work outside the home still do way more unpaid labor in the home than do men. And the reason why like their women are able to make that work with respect to um uh, their paid employment is because they can purchase care services outside the home, either with childcare or through things with school. During the first year of the pandemic, half a million Canadian women were forced out of the workforce. When kids were home, mothers were 12 times more likely to leave their work than were fathers of school-aged kids. This is a problem, and this is a real policy, a, a major policy problem. Um, and so I think that's one of those things where that's going to have spillover effects into leadership because we have expectations about like work credentials, about like public participation for anybody who wants to participate in other forms of public life. Like say politics. I worry about what this means about women who have been put behind in their careers and what this means for their future political aspirations. I can totally see some women being like, if I can't, if I'm struggling to manage some of this stuff and I don't have the support that I need, um, politics is a like a much more intense 
more like the, the demands on time, especially are, are much more intense with politics. And so I can see, I don't want to say that this is going to create a chill, but I think if we're going to be serious about ensuring that our politics looks like our population, we have to think really seriously about how we're actually engaging in that kind of support. And I would go so far as to say that um, it is to our detriment that we don't have like parents in politics It is to our detriment that we don't have those supports present Um and that means that, like, we should be actively working to figure out what we need to do to get those supports in place so that, like, women in general, mothers in general, women of color, Indigenous women, like, all of those women have the uh, space to be able to participate as they see fit. And I, I keep coming back to this, but it is really striking for me in the context of the pandemic that we're really seeing with heartbreaking clarity how those supports are not there and we've just been cobbling together to make do. I think this is a good opportunity to take the time to really think about how we would seriously dismantle a lot of those equities. It sounds like Anjum and Melanie agree, and perhaps you do too, that we find ourselves as Canadians at a turning point. We stick with the status quo or we really take a good look in the mirror and we use what we see as a departure point for change. And you know what? The beginning of a new year is a perfect time to reflect on this. When you take a good hard look in the mirror at Canada, what changes do you want to see? And what are you prepared to do about it? We will all have different answers to those questions. And you know, that is a really good thing. We need more people working on so many different issues, from fighting the climate crisis to addressing all forms of inequality. For me, The top of the list of what I want to see change is our politics. Let me be clear. I am so done with the underrepresentation of women in politics. And I'm so done with seeing big groups of Canadians, BIPOC communities, people with disabilities, young people, people who have a whole host of important lived experiences, not holding their fair share of political power and not being represented in our top political roles. In a democracy, when political leadership is really only an option for the privileged, well, we have major work to do. I want to see more women and a greater diversity of women in every sense in our top political jobs, period. Now, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers, but I am very interested in finding out what can we learn from others? What have other countries tried? What's worked? What can we learn by asking good questions to people who are working on these very issues in other places? Well, this is what No Second Chances Season 2 is all about, opening our eyes and ears to see what we can learn beyond our own borders. I am someone who loves to travel. During the pandemic, this has been one of my coping strategies, Zooming with strangers around the world to see what we can learn. From Taiwan to Chile to New Zealand and more, these conversations have proved to be a lot of fun and offered some insights and inspiration. Of course, there are Canadians who get to do this every day, like Jacqueline O'Neill, Canada's first ambassador for women, peace, and security. Before taking on this role, she was the president of the Institute for Inclusive Security, supporting coalitions of women leaders in peace negotiations and policymaking in Colombia, South Sudan, Sudan, Pakistan, and beyond. 
I've been very lucky to work with women in government and parliaments around the world, uh, including in my own country, Canada, and uh, even grew up with uh, a mother who was in politics. My mom was a um, provincial member of the Legislative Assembly of Alberta when I was uh, growing up, and so had a bit of an inside view on, on her experiences there. Uh, and I found a few things, one being that uh, we have far more similarities than differences uh, in terms of the fact that women in every single community have ideas about what the priorities of that community should be, about how money should be spent, about uh, the way that the government should be organized, about what the community's priorities should be, what their vision is. So, uh, you know, I, I find that there's no place where we there isn't an appetite among at least some women to be involved in decision-making, whether in formal uh, systems or not. I've also very much, it's very, very clear the extent to which, you know, different countries have different journeys and are in very different places and that we have much to learn from each other, but we have to always do it in our own context. Everything that is that is infused in us from even a very young age uh, affects the way that we consider any type of uh, effort or initiative to get more women involved in politics. I think in some countries, having really visible role models at senior leadership positions is extremely important. Uh, in some places, uh, seeing more women at community levels who are working on community level solutions is something that uh, is really important and it's going to move the needle more. So I think we should always be humble enough to recognize that there's there are things that we need to understand and, and that we need to learn from other places. And there are experiences that we need to share uh, and that there's value in sharing. And I, I think um, anything that we learn from elsewhere should be taken with, uh, you know, have a Canadian lens applied to it and adapted to it, to us. Uh, even while the fact that uh, that many of our challenges are shared. The funny thing is that this came up on almost every call, with leaders and politicos and experts around the world. The underrepresentation of women in politics is a global challenge, and it looks a little different in each place. The solutions might be different, but the reasons are largely the same. We need to see women in senior political roles everywhere in the world, including in Canada. And that's because we need women everywhere that decisions are being made. And it's not because they are inherently more peaceful or inherently more anything. Uh, it's because the best policies and the best decisions result when the people who are most directly affected by them have a say in making them. And the government makes policies for everyone. So we need as broad as possible a selection uh, of voices and of groups and of perspectives going into making them. And especially in politics. Here, here. We have to keep saying it and we have to talk crucially uh, about the fact that we are not also talking about um, just women for the sake of being women. We need women who have diverse perspectives. So rural women, urban women, older women, younger women, uh, women from racialized communities. People always say, I don't want to vote for a woman just because she's a, a woman. So of course not. No one wants you to do that. We want you to look at the range of experiences that you want representing you at decision-making tables and think about the extent to which 
uh, that person's perspective represents your own or reflects your own. Uh, so we want women, but we have to go much, much deeper than that and ensure that we have diverse groups generally. Okay, so how do we do that? I asked the ambassador what she's observed. Primarily, I've focused on countries that are experiencing or directly coming out of the peak of violent conflict. And in many cases, either the peace agreement that end the, ended the conflict or the constitution that was drafted just afterwards includes some type of quota related to a parliament or national assembly for women. And quite honestly, you know, especially when you're coming out of a conflict, when you've had this massive dis disruption, um, implementing a quota can really help address some of the legs and the, the massive um, underrepresentation and exclusion that women in particular have faced. Uh, Rwanda is the country in the world, as you know, with the highest representation of women in parliament. They have uh, just over 60%. And they actually have a quota, but their quota is 30%. And so I, it's a whole separate story, but you know, I think it's really fascinating the way that women in Rwanda use the quota. They, they worked on lists. They ran their strongest candidates off, off of the list designated for women. Uh, they, you know, they ratcheted up past the 30% and have been consistently increasing it. Uh, but it's something that I don't think they would have had anywhere near as significant a foot in the door without a, a quota. Of course, there are tons of other reasons and, and things to consider and reasons why women are not as directly uh, um, represented in parliaments. Um, I've seen in particular in, in countries where I've worked um, that for many women, government is often associated with oppression or corruption or kind of dirty business of, of politics, and they don't want to be associated with it. Uh, so changing that perception is extremely important. Uh, money is still a very big thing. It, it costs a lot of money to run uh, as a politician. It costs less in some places and, and much more in others. But uh, reducing the costs that for any individual woman to run for office is certainly a, a big thing. And I, I, I think the, the amount of money that it takes to enter politics is a really, really big issue that we need to deal with around the world. Uh, and physical safety, of course, I've, I've engaged and worked with a lot of women uh, in Canada and around the world who talk about facing just awful levels of misogyny, of, of threats, of uh, violence online, um, online hate that can translate into physical violence. Uh, you know, it's very real. We're asking for a lot when we <laughs> encourage women to run for office. And I think part of what we need to address has to deal with the environment uh, into which they're stepping. And it's not at all enough to be able to say to women, just ignore it, let it roll off your back, et cetera. We have to really address what has become acceptable and, and what we deem okay for people to say to someone uh, who's running for public office. The same barriers we know women face in Canada are also experienced in many places around the world. It's one of the reasons that only one in 10 countries around the world have had a female head of state or government, and well over half of countries around the world have never had a woman reach their most senior position. So smashing the patriarchy, it's not exactly a small problem. And frankly, even making tiny incremental improvements can require an enormous shift. So is it even possible? And if so, is this the moment? 
we've had this massive disruption of a pandemic, which has changed practices and norms that tons of us thought really were not changeable. Uh, so we've had this massive global pandemic that has also highlighted inequality in ways that we had not had a spotlight shone on before. It's our challenge right now to think about how we really not just observe different lessons, but we actually apply them and build them into our system. And in the space that I work in primarily about getting more women involved in decision-making about peace and security, my obsession right now is making sure that we're not just uh, kind of observing what's happening to us right now and then going back to, to things as, as normal practice was before, uh, but looking at ways that our systems need to adapt to really reflect what we are actually learning. Already, some powerful themes are emerging. Addressing gender inequality is urgently needed. We have lost ground during the pandemic, and perhaps even in ways we don't fully yet understand. But we are in a moment of peaked awareness and hopefully ambition. Major change may be possible, but we risk losing this opportunity through complacency with the status quo. Does that reflect your take on where we are today, Canada? Is this our departure point? I started this episode by talking about the promise and possibility of a new year. Canada is a project that will never be done, but it will be better when more of us have a greater chance to shape it. This podcast is but one contribution. We hope to share with you a few things and introduce you to a few new voices from around the world, people who can offer insight or even better, inspire us to act. This season, the No Second Chances podcast will learn from leaders around the world and take a look at what others are doing to address inequality in their political system. Spoiler alert, there is lots to be learned. So let's go. We'll see you next time as our tour begins. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, which has been made possible by the generous support of MasterCard and Margaret McCain. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Graham, and edited by Aaron Reynolds. No Second Chances is produced by the Canada 2020 team, including Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jura, under the leadership of Executive Chair Anna Ganey. More information about the project can be found at nosecondchances.ca.